New York Times and USA Today best-selling author Sharon Sala is the queen of romantic suspense, with more than 130 books published in multiple genres, but particularly she concentrates on writing small-town romance and thrilling romantic suspense. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today we've got a real treat multiple award-winning author Sharon talks about her latest two releases, Don't Back Down, the new romantic suspense and a new series, and the small town romance, The Next Best Day. She also talks about her remarkable gift for dreaming the stories she writes, and the Native American heritage from two great-grandmothers she is happy to claim as her own. Our giveaway this week is free genre fiction on Kobo, a fantastic range of popular genre fiction from top authors. So take your pick. Whether you like mystery, romance, sci-fi or audiobooks, all of them free, available for a limited time, including Poison Legacy, book one of my Of Gold and Blood mystery series. And we've also got a box set book sale, 30% off in a sale. I've got the first three books in Of Gold and Blood included. That's Poison Legacy, Brother Betrayed and Double Jeopardy. All available at 30% off. Links for where you can find where to download those bargains on the show notes for this episode on your website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave a review so others will find us too. But now here's Sharon. Hello there, Sharon, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author. You've got 132 plus books published in seven different genres, first published in 1991, and you still have a passion for writing 40 years later. What drives that passion? Oh, I don't know. I was always loved storytelling. I was a reader from very early age and a dreamer, just daydreamed. Everything in my Sleep was dreams. It's like going to the movies when I go to bed. So I just wanted to put them on paper and share them with people who like to read. And so did you start writing at a very young age? No, just an avid reader. It was probably the early 80s when I first thought about it. And I wrote two books and put them under the bed and never did another thing with them until the mid 80s. And then I got serious about it. That's lovely. We'll get into that story a little bit later on, but we'll focus on your most recent books. You have really now, although I mentioned the seven genres, you have focused very strongly on romantic suspense and contemporary romance, probably mostly of a sweet and small town uh, nature. And your latest romantic suspense series is one called Secrets and Shadows. You've just started a new series. You've got multiple series, I might add. And it's set around the Pope family in Jubilee, Kentucky, a small mountain town 
could you introduce us to the Popes and to Jubilee? This is going to be a series. Do you know how many books it's going to be yet? Yes, I just finished the fifth and last book last week, and I've been editing all week, and I'll turn it in. There are several groups of popes, but everybody who lives on Pope Mountain is interrelated from being early day settlers. So the first pope that you run into in the book, his name is Cameron Pope. And then the second book is about Aaron Pope, and he's a cousin. And that family has four brothers. It's Aaron, Sean, and Wiley, and Brendan. And that fifth one, when will that fifth one actually come out? Oh, golly, I don't know. Probably, let's see, this is going to be 23. Two come out in 2024. So I'm guessing unless they cram all three of them in the last year so in 2024 i would say the fifth one from the way source books has been stringing them out probably the first part of 2025 so they launched quite a long time after you finished writing them you probably can barely remember writing them by the time they come out sometimes i keep a very detailed journal in each book i write even when they're not connected and it's easy for me to go back and thumb through my journals and find details and remember. Yeah. So the one that we'll be talking about a bit today is Don't Look Back. That is book one. But the second one, Last Rites, has just come out. Now, Cameron, the kind of foundation person you might call the series, he has been a special forces agent in Afghanistan for 10 years. He's returned banged up like a lot of those men were by their experiences and relishing being withdrawn from society and he meets this woman Rusty Caldwell who he had a very fleeting meeting with before he went overseas. She's had a pretty remarkable career of her own parallel to his while he's been away. Tell us a bit about Rusty and Cameron and their relationship. Sure. Cameron was going to his second tour of Afghanistan and Rusty is an undercover FBI agent and she was going to another one of her jobs and they meet by chance in a hotel lobby and instant attraction. And they agreed not to even give each other's names because they knew it was going to be a one night thing. And she called him soldier boy and he called her angel. And they had the one brief night and parted and were sorry that they lost touch with each other. They both regretted it the minute they were apart that they hadn't exchanged names. But here we are, maybe four years later, and they meet again because the FBI, we call them the feds here in America, the FBI has sent Rusty into the town of Jubilee to in help investigate what has turned out to be human trafficking. And Cameron has become like one of the heads of the an or of the family, the Pope family. He's the oldest of the popes still living. There's many older popes, but they're all women and grandmothers and aunts. So Cameron's the main guy here, and Rusty's the main woman in his life, and they reunite, and it's really good. But they're also working together to solve this big crime wave that is going through this tourist town. And Cameron has a most remarkable dog, a white 
giant German shepherd named Ghost, who he connected with in Afghanistan. It was just a little puppy. And the puppy followed him everywhere. And every time they moved, Ghost went with him. And he taught himself to sniff out bulbs. So Ghost was a soldier with Cameron in Afghanistan. And when he came home, he was Cameron's buddy for life. They yeah. have a really great relationship. My readers love them. Yes, that's wonderful. Do you have animals in your books quite often? From the way you wrote about them, I love ghosts too. Actually, I myself had a white German shepherd many years ago now, but yeah, I oh. love ghosts, yeah. And then last rites, you introduce the second member. You talk about Aaron. And that's yes. got terrific reviews. I looked up some of the reviews and the people are already raving about it. They use words like emotionally wrenching, sensually appealing, edgy and suspenseful, hopeful and endearing. You managed to do all of that in a book. Give us a bit of an idea of what happens with Aaron in that book too that's just out. Sure. To start it off, their mother, Shirley, was a pope before she married. And they have not been raised on Pope Mountain and she has four sons and her husband was very abusive and then he committed a crime and wound up in prison for life and Shirley and her sons were having a very difficult time existing in this town where they had grown up because of his reputation so they decided to move home and change her, their name to her maiden name again so here comes Shirley Pope and four new popes back to Pope Mountain. And Aaron was a policeman in Conway, Arkansas, where they lived before. And after their father committed such atrocious crimes, they were ostracized and Aaron lost his job. He finally goes back to work again as a policeman in Jubilee and finds his place there. Fantastic. What do you enjoy about romantic suspense? I'm an action-adventure junkie. I would watch Terminator 20 before I'd watch one more Bridget Jones Diary. I like the action. I like the drama. I like that there's, and I always have to have good winning out over evil. I never let the bad guys get away with anything. I have no problem killing them whatsoever. <laughs> really good work. I don't never have to see a psychiatrist because I just get it all out in the books. <laughs> get rid of them that way. Aaron meets a really sweet woman who helps them solve a almost 200-year-old mystery in their family when she finds a journal that belonged to the first Brendan Pope. The tragedy in that story, I won't tell it all because I don't want to give it away, is that they didn't know until they found the journal that Brendan's little Chickasaw wife had gone up a mountain to pick berries one day and never came back down. They never knew what happened to her. She disappeared. And so that journal helps the family in this day and time solve the mystery and find her remains. And the last rites is putting her to rest. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you changed gears when you move to the other solid stream of your career, and that's the romance. And the most recent book in your romance stream is The Next Best Day. That's a warm-hearted second chance romance about a school teacher who has a very tough beginning in life 
and a solo dad police officer. They both had their wounds in life and they meet in a small town in the South. I wondered if writing those books gave you a great, like almost a holiday going to the beach after the romantic suspense. I do like to switch up genres. It's relaxing to, to do that. And it gives me a fresh aspect to start from. My, my daughter is a school teacher. She's the fourth generation school teacher in my family. I skipped. I'm the one who didn't become a teacher. But I patterned the heroine in that book after my daughter's job and after the things that they go through. There is a lockdown. There's a school shooting in that book. It's There's tragedy in that book. There's betrayal in that book. It's really I can't write just a romance. It's my stuff will have drama in it regardless, even no matter what they call it. I'm going to have drama in a story. I just can't not. That's fabulous. There's lots of dialogue with both Sam Youngblood's girls, the, the police officers, two young girls, plus the children in the classroom. And yes. there's terrific dialogue with the kids, really snappy, smart dialogue from these kids and it's got a real ring of truth to it I wondered if you you saw a lot of children in your life or whether you've even just observed your daughter but that comes through very strongly I'm a mother and a grandmother of four and I helped raise my niece after my sister died so I've been surrounded by children all my life I worked at a public school for eight years and and my daughter has been a kindergarten and pre-k that's four-year-olds five-year-olds six-year-olds for her entire teaching existence, a little over 25 years, and I hear her stories now all the time. I know these kids forwards and backwards, and this is just true of their innocence in answering. They don't lie. The truth comes out whether you're ready to hear it or not. That I know. No filter, as they say. (laughs) Absolutely none. And Sam Youngblood, Obviously, the name indicates that he's got Native American descent, although he, the story doesn't really go into that in a long, big way. And I noticed that you mentioned with Last Rites that a Chickasaw wife is involved, and you've got some Native American background yourself. So you like to include Native Americans in your stories? Sure. Back in the day, if there was a Native American in a romance book, if And it was within a tribe. And in this day and time, they're everywhere. And it stands to reason that a policeman could be a Native American just like he could be an Italian or a a Jewish person or a, a Baptist preacher. You just don't know. And it shouldn't matter, you know, what an ethnicity is for a character, at least not to me. And I'm very, uh, proud of my, Native American heritage. I don't have enough blood to belong to tribal stuff anymore, but I have a great-grandmother who was three-quarter Cherokee and another great-grandmother, who's both on my daddy's side, who's Cree. She was from the Canadian, from the Northern tribes. So those are my ancestors. And then my daughter, my granddaughters, all belong to the Muscogee tribe. So here in Oklahoma, to be Indian is normal. There's way more in sometimes than, than people know. 
and we're just milling around and walking around and everybody just sees what they see. And I just want them to just know that Indians are just regular people. We don't live on reservations here. We don't have teepees and whatever. We're just people. And I want them to just be people in my stories and honor them. You have honored that tradition yourself in several nonfiction books you've written. And I'd just like to ask you about how that heritage might have influenced generally your writing and the way you approach it. I know that my daddy was the storyteller of the family, that he was one of six brothers. And every time our, our family was huge, it was like a clan. Every time we'd get together, he was the one who was telling the jokes and telling the stories. And his brother would say, Doc, tell about the time. And daddy would start a story over again. I know that storytelling is a traditional part of Native American tribes. Oral history is how history is kept. And so I like to think that's just me just continuing the bloodline of storytelling. And you're very much influenced by dreams too, aren't you? I saw somewhere that a lot of your stories, you dream them first. Do you think that's part of also the same heritage, giving weight to dreams perhaps? I can't, yeah, I can't speak to how it happens. It's just I was born this way. I've always dreamed and it's always been a whole entire like a movie I don't just dream a little bit here and a little bit there and then wake up and I usually remember the dreams that matter and my dreams become books a whole lot of my books are dreams and sometimes they're waking dreams like a vision and sometimes they're sleeping dreams like at night wow I mentioned you've written some inspirational nonfiction and I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that because it sounds like it's very much part of your whole life. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it started because I was, every time I blog on Facebook, I don't have a regular blog, but I post blog, daily blogs on Facebook. They're about my life and what's going on and what I believe and just funny stuff and sad stuff and all kinds of things. And people, my readers and the Facebook friends start saying, I wish you would put these all in a book. Your stories are so wonderful. I wish you would put them in a book. And so that's how the first one came about. And it's called Steering from the Back Seat. I think that's it. been a long time. I think, yeah, I think that's it. Steering from the Back Seat. And it's the cutest cover. It's my daughter driving me. It looks like driving Miss Daisy. It's my redheaded daughter in the front seat of a little uh, Volkswagen convertible, and I'm in the back seat waving, and that's the cover, steering from the back seat. And then there was another one called uh, The Light Within, and then When Spirit Speaks. And I know some people freak out about this, but I'm just upfront about it. I have seen angels, and I get messages in my dreams, and I pass them on. And a lot of that's where that came from. Fantastic. Look, turning a little bit more to the professional side of your career, you've won endless awards. There's a great list of them on your website. Lots of readers from the Romance Writers of America. Is there one amongst those many awards that stands out for you that you were particularly delighted to receive? Yes, of course. I That would be uh, the Nor Roberts Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, you can't in our industry, you can't get any better than that. That's our Oscar. That's our lifetime Oscar. 
achievement is the Rita. Want a Rita? I've also received a Centennial Award from RWA for a hundred books, having hundred books published. Or some 137 now. I think the things that have stuck with me the longest, though, are the readers that I met that are now my friends and the booksellers I made friends with when I first started. Those friendships have lasted for 32 years, and they are most precious to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. Before we move away from the best, the next best day, I thought you had a funny little joke, a sort of private joke there, that you have your heroine, Kate. She's reading this author called Dinah McCall, and several times it's referred to how she's really just going to relax with the Dinah McCall book. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Dinah McCall. Sure. Dinah is my alter ego. My publisher, it was Mira at the time. I turned in a book that was paranormal. It's called Dreamcatcher. And they wanted to release it separately from the regular romantic suspense. And they said, we need to release this under another name. And I said, no, I want this to be my name. And they said, no, we want you to have a pen name. So that's how Dinah McCall came about. And Dinah was my sister's nickname. Her name was Diane. And Diane passed away. She died in 1985. So that was about six years before my first book was published. So if I had to go along and be called something besides Sharon, I chose the name my mother called me half the time. You know how a mother will call her children by the wrong name? I answered to Dinah about half my life anyway. So I thought Dinah McCall would be good. Uh, That's that's how she came to be born. Yeah. Gorgeous. And is she still writing as well? Sometimes. I wrote a Native American reincarnation time travel a few years ago. It was uh, Wind Walker and The Doves and The Gathering. And yeah, I wrote those under Dinah McCall. But the last romantic suspense Dinah McCall I wrote, my fiancé, my childhood sweetheart, died of cancer in the middle of me writing that. and I had the worst time of my life trying to finish that book. It was called The Survivors. And that was technically the last Dynamo Call book. And that was in 2005, 2006 when it was published. And so Dinah hasn't done romantic suspense since, just me. Dinah's still alive in my heart. And once in a while, I think I'm going to publish, because I do some self-pubbing too. And I think I'm going to maybe use her name again. Oh, great. I will, make it, I will tell you a funny, Dinah beat me to beat Sharon to the New York Times bestseller list. So I was perturbed. <laughs> what was that for? What book was that for? Uh, Do you remember? Dark Water. Dark ah. Water. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was like, dang it. Your sister was probably laughing from heaven. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I, the minute it happened, I said, it figures. She was so competitive. She was a little bit younger than me, but she was the boss and I didn't care. And I said, that figures. She beat me to the New York Times bestseller list and I know she's laughing her ass off. <laughs> Just knew it. Look, turning away from the specific books to talk a little bit about your wider career, what kind of work and life experience did you have before you got around to writing? Did, did you 
and and did that affect your writing in any way? Um, probably just because it was life experience. I was a farmer's daughter, and I worked for a couple of years at at an Air Force base when I was graduate when I was out of college. I didn't graduate, but I was out of college, and then I after that I worked off and on after I married a farmer. So I was a farmer's daughter and married a farmer. And I worked at all kinds of funky little jobs, but for the most part, full-time on the farm, driving wheat trucks, hauling hay, building fence, planting gardens, raising babies, mowing yards, everything you can think, chasing cows that get out on the road, everything you can think of. And I did work in a grocery store once, checking groceries, checking them out. And I worked in a floor shop for a while. And I worked at a sale barn in the restaurant, serving hamburgers to the old guys who came in there to buy and sell their cattle. I just had a varied life. And it's been hard, but it's a blessed one. It's a blessed one. And how did you make that switch to writing? Was there something that triggered that? Yeah, chickens, chickens. Every week, chickens would go, chickens from the butcher shop in our meat department, chickens would go on sale. And it was, and I lived in a rural community. I said every week, once a month, chickens would go on sale. And I lived in a rural community and half the people raised chickens and had their own eggs and butchered their own chickens. But you'd think, there was never going to be another chicken sold as long as they lived. And they swarmed the supermarket for chickens. And, it, and I was checking groceries and chickens that just was running on the conveyor belt. And they stopped. And that was the messiest, messiest mess. Sometimes I would check out 15 chickens for one person. Just they were packaged, but they were just messy. And I would go home with it running down my elbows and all over my shirt. And I hated when chickens went on sale. And I went home one night. I had to check out. And it was 1030 when I got home. And there sat my husband and two teenage children. And they looked up at me. And I come in the door. And I'm just a mess. And they go, Mom, what's for dinner? And I went, what? <laughs> and I made them eat bologna sandwiches and got a typewriter out of the closet and sat down and started writing. Literally, it was that impulsive. I just thought, I cannot do this anymore. I have to tell myself something besides this life. And that's what started it was a job I hated. Oh, that's wonderful. And was that book published? No, it was a book that it took me a year to finish because I wrote after work and before I went to work. And when it was finished, I knew it was terrible. And I stuck it under the bed, but I was hooked on the process. And I wrote another book and I stuck it under the bed and it wasn't any better. And I let it slide. And then four years later, my dad died. And two months after that, my sister. And I thought, okay, if I've got a dream, I'm going to have to go for it myself because in a heartbeat, all of their tomorrows were over. And I wasn't going to wait till I was on my deathbed and say, I wish I'd tried one more book. Yeah. And the next book I wrote, I sold. And that yeah. was Sarah's Angel. 
Oh, that's fantastic. If there's one thing that you see as the, quote, secret of your career, what would it be? The refusal to take no for an answer. It's the hardest job in the world. You're criticized for everything. They want to control. Publishers want to control every aspect of what you turn in. They agree on something and then it doesn't happen. If you don't have it in writing by the time something it's due to happen, the person who promised it is working somewhere else or been yeah. fired or the publishing house sold out to another one. And it is the most crazy, unpredictable job. It's as bad as being a farmer because <laughs> you live for hoping the weather's okay. Yeah. As a writer, you live for hoping you live to write another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yes, hard. You... It's hard. Yeah, it's great that you can self-publish as well, though, that you know. It is to... now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can retain some control if you want to that way. Mm. And I love it. Mm. I just actually had my first children's book come out about three weeks ago. It's a little illustrated book. One of those little read-to-me books, two to eight-year-old kids who can't read, and maybe their mama still and daddy still read nighttime stories to them and everything. And it is already a big hit at my daughter's school, and it's up for sale on Amazon. It's called There's a Squirrel in the Attic. It's a cute little illustrated book, hardback, paperback. And you've self-published that one? I did. Yeah. Because I could. Great. Look, we'll put... And links to all of these things that you're mentioning in the show notes for this episode. So people will be able to find them if they go online and look at the transcript of this chat we're having. So they can look for it Thank there. You. That's fantastic. Turning to Sharon as reader, because we always like to, like to ask our authors about what they read and if they've got any recommendations for our listeners. What do you like to read and what lately have you read that you'd like to recommend? I don't get a lot of reading time, and especially now, like I said, I was on a deadline, and I don't read in my genre when I'm writing either. That's distracting to me. Some of my favorite authors, of course, are going to be the mystery suspense authors because that's the kind of movies I like to see and the books I like to read. I like uh, Lee Childs, Harlan Coben, Elmore Leonard. Uh I could go on and on. There was a, a writer a few years ago that, that I stumbled upon. His name's John Hart, and that's H-A-R-T-E, John Hart. In my mind, when I read the that first book of his that I read was called The Last Child, I was so struck by the perfection of his storytelling and imagery that I wished I was him. It still gives me chills to think about how alive that story was for me personally. So I enjoy stories like that. And of course, I read my friend's work, all of my friends, but I don't get as much chance to. I'm going to read a little bit now that I've finished this book, but have to wait and see. I've got a book waiting for me to read. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's about the Osage tribe and it's a true story. They made a movie about that. But it's about the Osage tribe and the big oil boom they got caught up in at Oklahoma. Fantastic. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? Probably to stand up for myself sooner. 
with, with editors to just stand up for myself sooner and not let myself be run over. It was all so new and I fell into a, a box, a niche, and that's where I wound up. And what was the box? The little box was, I write romantic suspense and they wouldn't let, let me out. What else did you want to do that, at that time? At that time, gosh, I was half of my backlist was paranormal. And when one editor that I had left and they gave me another one, I was told I cannot ever write another paranormal romance for them. They didn't want it. They wanted what I used to write five years ago. And it tanked my sales because half my readers were looking for paranormal and couldn't get it. Like I said, it's hard business. But I learned to bounce. And like I said before, I don't take no for an answer. If somebody doesn't want it, I'll find somebody else who does. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully you've picked up since then and got back right, right where we should be. Goodness, it's keeping a roof over my head. <laughs> That's great. What's next for Sharon as author? What have you got on your desk for the next 12 months, for example? I have a book to write before Christmas. So I have a Christmas book for source books to write. It's called, I think, A Snowy Mountain Christmas. Wasn't the title I wanted, but they changed it, and I have to live with that. I also have another series that I'm going to be starting after I write this Christmas book. I have another children's illustrated book that, that I'll be working with an illustrator on beginning in September. And I have one more book to write in the, that Lynn Walker trilogy that I was telling you about, the Native American one. I have one more book to write for that. Long overdue. How long does it take you to write a book? How many do you produce, say, in a year? I am my sole support, and I lost my house and all my savings taking care of my mother when she had dementia for 14 years. So I write every day and sell everything I can because that's what's keeping me afloat. I write a minimum of three big romantic suspenses a year and maybe a short story or a novella in between. So three to four books a year. And that's, nor that's normal. That's not a stress. I write as fast as I read. Fantastic. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I love talking to them. I miss going to conferences because I used to give workshops all the time. And that just fills your soul as a writer, being around your people, your tribe. I'm on Facebook, and I have an Instagram account, but I don't do anything on it, so don't even try to find me there. I have two, an author page and my personal page, but they're both public, so you don't have to be my friend. You can just follow me and read what you want to, and the yep. blog is always on my personal page. We'll put our links to all of those things in the show notes. Not Thank a problem. you. That's wonderful. It's been great talking, Sharon. It really has. Had a lot of fun, and... It's lovely to meet such a real person. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I hope you get all your roughing over with. Thanks so much, Sharon. Bye. Next week on Binge Reading, romance written by a man, T.A. Trevor Williams, 
and also some fantastic cosy mysteries. This man does two things too, great romance and great cosy mysteries. They're wonderfully escapist stories set in exotic locations with a remarkable black Labrador named Oscar. And once again, a quick reminder, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover the show and great books they will love to read. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.